picking up in Matthew chapter 5 again. Before we dive into week 4 of Upside Down Living, I want to catch you up. In fact, you may be a first-timer today. Welcome. We're really glad you're here. And we want to catch you up on this series of sermons that we're calling Upside Down Living, the radical message of the Beatitudes. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 1, going to read down through verse 5 this morning. Seeing the crowds, he's talking about Jesus. He went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. As I said, I want to get you caught up. This beatitude section is actually the first part of a larger message. In fact, it's the largest single core teaching that we have that Jesus did called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are actually just the very first part of it. And they're about a people group. And Brad has asked you, what people group is he talking about? There you go. Kingdom people. That's right. Our character, what they are like. And we know as we look at this passage that is distinctly countercultural. Conventional thought was not that, that, yeah, everybody's like this. It was challenged both then and especially now. And if you are here today, just like they in those days, if you don't understand your spiritual condition, the truth is the reality of this message is that you may look at it and you go, oh, those are admirable traits for the monk But that is nice, but it's not realistic, especially for the hard-charging, achievement-oriented Westerner. And the focus of this is on the present state, both the now, but also it has an element of the not yet. So let me recap what what I'm talking about here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is basically saying the kingdom of heaven is now for those who are poor in spirit. But he also says, blessed are those who are mourning, or those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A future-oriented look. Poor in spirit, as you recall, means that we have nothing to bring. Any part of us that might think God ought to be glad that he got us because we're good people. He got one of the good guys. We remember that God is not impressed. We, God does not need us. He's not impressed with those who have the ability to dunk a basketball or to think big thoughts, win an office or an argument. No, the poor in spirit come to grips with reality that we come empty-handed to God. You'll never be saved until you know, I need a Savior. And the answers for my life don't come from within me, but actually are outside of me where God has had mercy and grace upon my life, and he gives me a Savior, Jesus Christ. And we get his wealth, 
We get his glory. We get heaven in him. Actually, more than we were before, we come to know and experience heaven, actually, to some degree now. Our spirit is poor, and he is actually all that we are not, and he comes, and he's offering you himself today. So we are all, to one degree or another, we know what it's like to be poor in spirit. And then we talked about mourning. Mourning is actually more than grief. It grows out of knowing how sin has broken your view of the world. And only when Jesus is the focus will you mourn your mess and exalt his deliverance. Jesus comes to clean up our lives with a flashlight or what I would call a spotlight, a laser-guided spotlight on your life. He does not come and throw a floodlight on all your generalities of sin, but he comes and addresses what's going on right now, whether it be gossip, whether it be anger, whether it be pride, whether it be lust, whether it be whatever. It is specific. And when our spirit is poor, we begin to mourn our sin, and we grieve specifically but we also do this. Instead of just mourning on the sin, we don't, we, we don't stay there. We throw a floodlight on Jesus because he's the answer. We exalt him and show him off because he is the correct focus for those who are mourning the grief of their sin. We know his saving grace. And as we talked about last week, Brad, the last couple weeks, these messages have a heaviness to them. But today we're going to turn our attention upon the least desired character trait. Let's hear what Jesus says again. Blessed are the meek. I don't know what your translation says. It could be gentle. It could say humble. Meek? Well, um... I got to be honest. I think you're like me. I want to be a person of integrity. I want to be a person of compassion. I want to be a person of honor. I want to do the right thing. I want to think the right thing. But please, whoa, wait a minute, meek. Many, if if not most of us, think, yeah, that's kind of honorable, but not highly valued. Pictures come to our mind. Let me show you one, one of the pictures that always comes to mind when I hear meek. Have you ever got a wet fish handshake? You reach out and shook somebody's hand, it was just like, oh, like, oh just kind of died in your hand. Or they, they, they grab you like with their fingertips, like you've got some kind of disease, all right? The soft talker. You know the soft talker? You can't hear what they're saying. That's what we see as meek. The person that averts their eyes, the person that's easily run over, this is the person we think has no stated opinion, they have no drive, no courage, meek, gentle, humble, just depending on your, uh, your translation, all imply a quality not necessarily highly regarded as it actually sounds weak to us or at least it's distinctly disadvantaged. We look at outward appearances, but what Jesus is calling us to here is an inward, an inward disposition. So let's talk briefly about what this word means. When he says, blessed are the meek. Meek means gentle, humble. 
But it has a connotation that has this, its early usage was used in terms of wind, trees, horses that were mild-mannered. It means to be under the hand. As powerful as a horse can be, a horse that is strong and fast, unsaddled and unbroken, is not going to win a race. They're just going to run amok. But they learn to live under the hand. Yes, it is observable. There's outward things that show up. But that's not what Jesus is fully talking about here. He's indicating that kingdom people are growing as they walk in new knowledge and understanding. Yes, we become keenly aware that we don't have anything to offer, that we have spiritual bankruptcy in our lives, and that will lead us to mourn over our sin. And from there, we are positioned appropriately to grow in humility, to grow in gentleness. And we do it because there's a reward for it. And here's an interesting thing. The Bible does command us to humble ourselves, but it does not indicate that effort will necessarily lead to greater gentleness in your life. Actually, trying harder may only lead in your life to greater pride, which is the opposite of gentle humility. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit and can be cultivated if you give ongoing attention to certain things. And those are the things that this morning I want us to give attention to. What are those things, or how do you cultivate a life where gentleness will actually grow in your life? First is this. You and I must continually and sincerely abandon trust in yourself. So you're increasingly setting aside trust that you know All that is needed to know, and you do not live in the delusion that you know best at all times. And that's what we do. That's and I've told you this before. The reason why you argue with other people is because you are sure you know what's best. That's why we argue. So how do you do this? How do you continually and sincerely abandon trust in in self? This is one of the ways. You got to revisit constantly that you cannot save yourself the gentle are not self-made yes they're new they're they're new people and they experience newness because of the work of grace on their life jesus is made much of and you begin to properly frame that you actually belong to another now this is not popular christianity But biblical Christianity says that you have been bought with a price. You don't make a decision to just go to heaven because you don't want to go to hell. You've been bought with a price. You belong to another. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And you may say, well, Brian, I don't feel very bought. And part of the reason is you don't revisit 
that salvation is not your work. It's an act of God by the grace of God through his mercy, through his son, Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. And guess what you had to do with it? Nothing. He moved on your life. So we got to revisit you cannot save yourself. Secondly, you continually and sincerely abandon yourself by keeping a confession of the truth that you are actually needy. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel vulnerable. I don't like saying I'm needy. It runs against the grain. But we do need the truth in our lives that we are needy. You need others, and you really don't. Nor will you ever have all that it takes to figure out life on your own. There's information that God wants you to have. There's truth and change and hope and direction that God wants you to have. And normally, do you know where that happens It does not happen by you reading the Bible. Yes, it happens there. Many times, you know how it happens? It happens through other people. You need other people in your life. It's why you need a community group. See, the implication here that there is a need for greater listening in your life. The meek learn to listen. There's information that God wants to give you. So a community group will benefit you. And you need a church. You need a church that you join and you live under authority, one with the other. This breeds better gentleness and greater gentleness in your life. Because you're not your own. Gentle people listen, not for the opportunity to talk, but to come to know what it means to live as a needy person. Needful of a Savior. Yes, I'm poor in spirit. I mourn. And I need to be pursuing change. This is how it happens. See, meekness is a success. But it does not have any swagger. Or it does not have a win-at-all-cost attitude. There's no pretension in the gentle soul. Success is found in obeying and trusting God for the outcome that is best for you. And glorifying to him. Your life in God's hands. Whatever he wants. Whenever he wants it. You are under his hand. The gentle live there. So I want to give you a little. At this point in the message. I want to give you a little acid test. Of this whole thing. How this works out. In our lives, when, when uh, I say that gentle people obey and trust God for the outcome that's best for you, if you are like me, everything does not go well all the time, right? Life is not always comfortable. It has some level of mess, sometimes severe level of mess. So I will ask you, when things are not going great for you, How much do you rejoice when others win? Now, I'm a UK grad. You know this. I'm not talking about Texas A&M beating Kentucky, all right? 
There's not a lot of rejoicing in the Phantom household over that. What I am talking about is when other people get promoted and when other people's kids are healthy and when it's seemingly you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and things are going swimmingly for them, but for you, you hurt. Gentle people learn to rejoice in the good that God is doing in the lives of other people, even as you possibly struggle. So is God good? Is he good when you cannot see it? When your bottom line does not reflect it, is God good? See, this becomes about trust and that God is trustworthy. All of us, to one degree, we have something we're passionate about that we want. And it's natural and easy to want to be more than you are. Man, I wish I was stronger. I wish I was faster. I wish I was more intelligent. I wish I was more gifted. And for any of us who have those desires of wanting to be better, I want to be better at something. All of us, you've heard me say, we want to be good at something. And I want you to know it is not, it's not a very far trip from there that we begin to go, Lord, why didn't you make me better than I am? God somehow, and we don't say this, but this is rumbling inside of us. God, somehow you've made a mistake. And when you believe that God makes mistakes, one thing is for certain, you're not going to trust God. God makes no mistake, and you are no mistake. And your circumstances are not a mistake. And when you, ab- when you live absolutely trusting in God in this moment, you will live more abandoned to the mission for you. And you will learn to thrive in quiet and gentle strength. Trusting God to choose what is best for you. And you will begin to live more gently under his hand. I think Corey Ten Boom captured it well. She was the author of The Hiding Place, telling the true story about how they hid Jews in their home, keeping the Nazis from them. She was a believer. She loved the Lord. She said, I want to be the donkey. The donkey, if you don't know, the donkey was this colt that Jesus rode upon on Palm Sunday. And she said everyone on that day was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises. Do you think for one moment that it ever entered the head of the donkey that any of that was for him? And for those of you sitting there going, I'm not sure, no. No, because donkeys don't think that way. You can begin to become gentle. You can grow as you trust God to make right what is wrong, beginning with you and the world around you. Some of you may have that feeling, that low-level feeling in your life. Brian, you don't know. There's such a mess in my life. God 
can make right what is wrong beginning with you. With you. And the world around us. And so I'll give you a couple examples. First off, there's Moses. Moses in the Old Testament is the quintessential great leader. He's the man. He and David. But notice what Numbers 12, 3 say about Moses. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Wow. Great leader, meek. How is it that God can use a gentle and meek person, specifically a person like Moses? Do you know that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in the lap of luxury, in the midst of fame and power? He committed murder and spent the next 40 years of his life on the backside of the desert, quite possibly wondering what we would wonder. What has happened to my life? But at 80, God came calling, and he called him to a new job, to deliver God's people. And by God's grace, he led the people out of Egyptian slavery. And you would think, as amazing as that was, and all the signs that happened with Moses and that stick, that the people would be grateful. And they were not. They complained bitterly. Why did you bring us out here? Why did you bring us out here to die and let our children die? Why did you do this? And it was not just only that. Even Moses said it was actually worse than that. He cried out to God in chapter 17. He says, I think they're going to stone me. They're going to kill me. Now, I don't know about you. Because I value being honest, if I would have been Moses, I can hear me now. You bunch of unthankful ingrates. I had a pretty good life. I didn't ask for this. You're on your own. Let's see how things work out for you. But that's not what Moses did. What Moses did is he prayed for the people, and he kept serving them. He was strength under control. This is gentleness. Then we look at Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says this, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. No adequate discussion of gentleness can be well stated without looking at Jesus. He is the supreme example of controlled strength, trusting God with every detail that was happening. He was God in the flesh, and the creation, his creation, rejected him. They didn't just reject him. They mocked him. They punished him. And you know what we do some 2,000 years later? We spend so much time focusing on that was the plan. That was the plan. That we forget that God in Christ at any moment, at every moment, was veiled deity in a human body. And he could have called down 
the armies of heaven and squashed all of us and just started over. But is that what we find Jesus doing? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Boy, may that be us. That no matter what other people are doing around us or to us, or saying falsely about us, or even if they're saying truth about us, that we would live submitted to God to judge justly, and we would not spend all of our energy fighting accusation. This is controlled strength. This is gentleness. And kingdom people are called to cultivate a lifestyle of complete, utter trust. In every circumstances, whether it be positive or, frankly, those perceived negative situations, when you feel weak, when you find yourself on the losing end of things, when you don't have the will to fight or even when you want to fight, you know what you do? By the mercy and grace of God, you stay under control. You stay under control. His hand, trusting God with all of your life, all of it. Jerry Bridges says, meekness is not weakness of character, but strength of character. It is the attitude of one who, realizing his own spiritual poverty, acknowledges he deserves nothing from the hand of God or his fellow creatures. He does not become resentful under adverse providences of God or the mistreatment of other people. He believes God will work all things for his good, so he leaves his case with God. He leaves his case with God. You and I can cultivate gentleness in our life, in your life, when you completely live submitted to the mission of Christ for your life. Every decision... Every day. This is what submission means. Submission. You know what a submarine is? Where do they go? Under the water. Submission means you are under the mission of another. God's mission for your life. See, the Bible shows us how this works. You cultivate this when you live submitted to the mission of Christ It's called the harvest principle. And all of us are subject to the harvest principle. See, it's applicable whether you are on a course of growing and changing for the better or actually on a path of growing and changing for the worse. Now, if you're a gardener, how many gardeners I've got in the room? Raise your hand. We got a few. You don't have to know how to garden. You can get this, okay? All right, here's how it works. Think about a field freshly plowed. Praise God for farmers and gardeners, for there is no food without them. Fresh plowed field. Imagine walking out, looking at that field, and you are going to plant in that field. 
at the very onset, understand this. Every gardener, every farmer, every one of us do things in faith. When a farmer, gardener looks at a field with no fruit in it, they are trusting, I'm going to sow, and then what's going to happen? Stuff's going to come up, and I'm going to what? Reap. So this is how the harvest principle works. Galatians 6, 6 through 9 is where it is. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So here's how it works. Here's the harvest principle. What you sow, more than you sow, later than you sow. What you sow, more than you sow, later than you sow. So, here's how it works. If you want a field of corn, sweet corn that you can eat, what are you going to plant in that field? Oh, my goodness. Say, say it a little louder. All right. Sweet corn. So, if, so typically you have a rose of corn. My dad would put three kernels of corn in a hill down, 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 the, uh, down the road. I am no farmer. My father was, okay? Now, what's going to come up out of that ground? Just sweet corn coming out of the ground, what comes out first? A stalk. A stalk. You guys are brilliant. <laughs> All right? A stalk comes out. What hangs on the stalk? Ears. Ears. And the ears, that's your corn, right? So if I put three kernels of corn in the ground, a stalk comes up. Am I going to get back exactly what I put in the ground? No. I'm going to get back how much? More. When? But this is what we do. This is what you and I do. We go, I got to give a good shot at this. I got, I got to cultivate gentleness. I, I got to try this Christian life thing. I've trusted Jesus. So we walk out to the field. We plant it. We go back inside. We sleep tonight. We walk out and we look at the field and go, that didn't work. We all live in the delusion that you ought to always be available now. Everything's microwave right now, right now, right now, right now. But the Bible does not show us a life like that. In fact, agrarian proverbs are replete in the scriptures. Sowing, waiting, reaping. And so the individual who sits in this room today thinking God doesn't care about the things that you're doing because he's not shown up yet to correct you, hang on. God is not mocked. And God is not mocked in your life when you say, oh, Lord, I, I have a mess. I'm broken. I mourn my sin. I'm poor in spirit. 
He swings you to the next. He makes you able to begin to see that gentleness can be formed in your life. Here's another way. You, you continue and you must continue to be mindful that you are a sheep. Sheep are dull and they are dependent creatures. They lose their way easily and they cannot fight. And since most of us are not uh, shepherds, we don't really know what this looks like. We're not described in Scripture as lions or wolves. Jesus did not say, I send you out as lions amidst wolves. But he says, I send you out as sheep. Sheep are dependent on the shepherd. Sheep live under the hand. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. But we want to be the strong sheep. We want to win at life, and we want our lives to have relative ease. So this beatitude is very challenging. It's just downright hard. Until you recognize your poor in spirit, until you recognize the specific things I've done have and are doing, they, 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 they make a mess of relationships. I've made a mess of relationships. And we want to be strong sheep, but we forget that God actually wants to give you far more than strength as a sheep. God wants to give you more than strength and power and wealth and fame. He wants to give you the freedom gained by knowing his faithfulness. The freedom gained that he is good and knows what is best. And as you totally submit your life to him, As you totally surrender and you say, Lord, I exist in mission for you and for your glory. The mess that may be your life begins to take on a new look. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus promises that as the world is made new, he's going to give it to the gentle. He's going to give it to us who live under his hand.